Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here again with Martin Puris. Martin, how are you doing? Good, good. Looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's, two, it's Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday morning. It's Wednesday. I know. I'm still looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> last time, I've been looking forward to this call because last time I felt like we covered a lot of things and a lot of talking about the present, a lot of talking about the past. And I felt like it was just like a cliffhanger. I, I felt like you were not complaining and it felt to me like you had a vision for the future and possibly a way to get there. And I don't think we really talked about that. And I also want to comment that for me, I expected to talk about creativity and your career and creativity. And it was much more about the nation and, and world and culture than I expected, pleasantly so. And I felt like you have thought about and probably spoken before about these things. If you don't mind, I'd like to start with, where is this coming from? You're successful. You've got a great reputation. You don't have to worry about these things. You could just kind of enjoy. Are you retired? You're not quite retired. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but you could enjoy doing client work. I'm not sure exactly what you're doing, but correct me if I'm wrong. You've got big picture thoughts and visions beyond what you get paid to do. And you've thought about them and you're putting them out there. I suppose that's true. It's in- inevitable, I think. Well, we live in, in, uh, in interesting times. And uh, I think we're, uh, if we care about the country we live in, I think we have to be concerned about what's going on. So I don't think you can isolate yourself from events of the day. Oh, man, I can tell you in the air of the environment, there's a lot of people, they don't always say it out loud, but they think to themselves, wow, things are getting really bad. I hope it happens after I die. <laughs> Which is, if they really spoke that out loud, it's like this terrible thought. I hope I die pretty soon compared to all the stuff that's happening. But it helps them sleep at night. and. I think a lot of people, I don't think the environment is the only where, only place people feel that way. No, I think it's more, I mean, there are a whole lot of things at, at the moment. Maybe we know too much. There's too much news and it's too available. Some of it isn't real news, but uh, nevertheless, we, we're constantly exposed to everything that's going on every in every corner of the world. And good news is not news. So we only see bad news. Uh, or scandal news. So I think I think we all ought to be concerned and all ought to make our voices heard or we're in danger of losing something precious. And, you know, I think we're plagued with systemic problems in our own country, our own culture, our own society, but there are also outside influences and competitions that we've never really had to face before. And so it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting decade for sure. The word that comes to mind as you say this is responsibility because a lot of people say what you've said. They talk about the things you're talking about as like, look at that stuff out there. And I feel like you're feeling, you're expressing, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. And I think that's what people have to do. Fortunately or unfortunately, the democratic, the American democratic idea depends on people, uh, A, being informed and B, being participants as opposed to standing on the sidelines complaining or wishing somebody else would do it for you. That's the way the the founders set it up. And uh, at the moment, we're a nation of civically illiterate people because we don't teach civics in school anymore. Yeah, I remember that. This Annenberg, if I remember right, the name of the study. Yeah, the Annenberg Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And, and other studies from, you know, from various universities around the country and various news media and various polling companies. And I mean, it all says the same thing. We're ignorant, illiterate, basically, uh, in terms of uh, understanding the country, why it was formed, how it was formed, what the Constitution says and why it says it. And we're just not actively participating. And the younger people, the you know, the millennials and the Gen Zers and the Gen Alphas that are coming behind them are the most illiterate of all. And they're going to make, they're now making, well, the Gen Z and millennials are now over 40% of the voting eligible voters. In a very short time, there'll be 60 over 60% of the eligible voters. And and they are the most illiterate, not because they're stupid, but because they haven't been taught. They're a product of the system that we've been creating for decades. Yeah, we don't teach it in school anymore. 
So it's they're illiterate because, you know, if, if nobody ever taught English, they wouldn't be able to speak English either. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a comment on their IQs. It's a comment on the school system and the, and the educational system as a whole. Based on what you've said about influence and persuasion as opposed to coercion yeah. and convincing, I feel like you're talking about changing culture, taking responsibility to change culture. And partly how to say, in, I mean, you said before, I think you said persuasion or, or I forget what you were describing. How can I say, what's the one thing I can say that when I say it? I saw the basis, the basis of all advertising, all propaganda, all uh, persuasion is uh, what is the one thing I can say that if I said it would make you want to buy one? It's the basis of all persuasion. I want you to see things my way, whether it's a political theory or whether it's a car or whether it's, you know, bottle of soap, dishwasher soap. I don't know. It's it's all, I, I want you to do it. So I have to tell you why you should do it, why it's important to you. That's that's what advertising is all about and propaganda in the political realm. So I feel, I'm going to jump in here. I feel like you talked about BMW, Mercedes, Audi. And when you said Audi, like they haven't put themselves forward. They, it's not clear what they stand for. Well, they haven't defined themselves. Uh, I don't know that they know what they stand for. Uh, it seems like they, maybe they don't. I'm sure the engineers do, but the marketing people don't seem to get it. You know, they've, they've missed the point completely. And I think they have an opportunity, but they're not taking advantage of it. I think you said you would like for the head of marketing or the appropriate person at Audi to come to you and say, let's, let's figure this out. Because I think, you, especially if they came to you in the style of before it all changed, before the quarterly stuff changed. Yeah, 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 right. And then I also think, I was trying to think, is there a client that you wish came to you? Like Congress? I don't think, the president? I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I feel like if there, there's this mythical Uncle Sam, I think it would be great if, if like, not that Uncle Sam exists, but if, if Uncle Sam came to you and said, Martin, help me, with my country. Yeah, I think uh, I think that would be the, the biggest, greatest marketing campaign of all time. I think um, in the beginning, there were the, con- you know, the um, Confederation of States, um, the Articles of Confederation, uh, while they were writing a constitution, you know, between the war and, and the, and the uh, approval of the constitution by the 13 states. And uh, there were very varying uh, opinions, uh, widely, wildly and widely varied opinions on what America ought to be, uh, ranging from let's have another king to let's have no government at all and everything in between. The idea that the Constitution that they worked on and put together would, would actually happen uh, was problematic at best. And, uh, but nevertheless, they had to get 13 very independent states to agree and sign it. Otherwise, there would be no country. There would be 13 countries, which would have disintegrated and been, had been taken advantage of by European powers who were waiting for that to happen. Uh, so they could, you know, they could nullify the potential power that America could have in the world for their own peculiar and selfish reasons. But I like to say that, that Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were the first American advertising agency because they were given the job to sell the Constitution to the 13 states, to Americans. Yeah, and you talked about the Federalist Papers before. Yeah, Federalist Papers. They wrote 85 Federalist Papers and published them in what was the social media of its time, newspapers and pamphlets. It was a great marketing campaign, and it worked. The 13 states signed up, and uh, voila, America, for real. And I think that needs to be done again. I think I think it's not enough that America, the story of America, the idea of America be told. I think it should. I think it has to be sold, as if it were a consumer product, uh, which it is. It's the greatest consumer benefit ever offered mankind, lest we forget. I think we've taken it for granted. You know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, the country's gone gone through problems before. Obviously, there was a little thing called the Civil War, which was. A dicey situation, and we've gone through a lot of problems in between. It's, you know, it's not the first time we've faced robber barons almost bankrupting the country. We had that in the first Gilded Age, and we survived it. And World War II was kind of a bringing together. It was the last holy war, probably. Hopefully, we'll ever fight. Uh, it was a 
clear contest of good versus unspeakable evil. And Americans gathered around and and, uh, cared more about the country and knew more about the country. And, of course, we taught American history (laughs) and civics in schools then. So they were an informed populace, and uh, and that was who, who called it the greatest generation. Uh, Tom Brokaw wrote the book, the great, the greatest generation, and they were the greatest generation in many respects. But we also had a bit of luck because after World War II, we we controlled as much as eighty percent of the entire world's manufacturing capability because Japan was flattened, and England was flattened, and Germany was flattened, and nobody else produced anything. You know, Russia never produced anything, and they still don't. (laughs) So money poured into the country, made the middle class rich by any any measurement, uh, and people were happy, and they were happy to be Americans. Since the World War II generation, Americans have taken for granted what we have and assumed that somebody else would do it. I've got a day job. Somebody else will take care of it. This, This guy in Congress will do it, or somebody will do it. And that's that's disengagement combined with the fact that we don't teach civics or American history in school anymore. So you have illiteracy and disengagement, which are the things that founders feared most. We've all seen or heard or read quotes of uh, America will never be defeated from the outside. If it's defeated, it'll be from the inside. And that's where we are, I think. I think we're our own worst enemy at the moment. And uh, and I think we're living at the edge of... Uh, Catastrophe. I think some of the, I think the fact that, I mean, there, there are pages of facts, but one that particularly bothers me is that 70% of Republicans think that the election was rigged and that Donald Trump is still president. 70, 70, 70% of Republicans, I don't know how many souls that amounts to, but it's millions and millions, tens of millions, think that the election was rigged, that Donald Trump is still president, and and Biden is is not. Uh, it, that goes to the absolute heart of this country. Free elections are at the heart of this country. You know, other countries don't have free elections. We see that all around the world. We've got presidents for life. You know, in, in the biggest in China, our, our main competitor. We've got Putin, who's president for life. Uh, we've got worse out there in, in various countries around the world. And post-World War II, democracy was spreading and now it's shrinking. I think uh, add that to the wage discrepancy, which is takes us back to the first Gilded Age when the country almost went bankrupt. Usually when you have four generations, four decades of the middle class not getting a raise, it's the prelude to a revolution, a real revolution. Yeah, and I think you're not looking for a revolution. I mean, what you're talking about is conservative. You want to go back, and, and I don't mean politically conservative, but in terms of... I don't want to go back. I want to go forward, but to, but sometimes you have to go back to go forward. Uh, the founders intended the Constitution to be changed. They never intended that it would be carved in stone and it would remain that way forever because they realized that it would be, become irrelevant. So Jefferson himself said that he he thought we ought to tear up the Constitution every 15 years or so, literally tear it up and start from scratch so that it would remain relevant because the the people living then would be writing a new one, which would be total anarchy. Uh, And I think he meant it literally, but uh, figuratively, not just Jefferson, other founders, you know, said that they created this flexible document so that it would remain relevant forever. But they relied on the on the civic literacy of its citizens and their engagement to do that. If you're not literate and you're not engaged, how are you going to change the system? Somebody else can change it for you. I want to pick up a couple of big themes. If I'm if I'm hearing you right, that we there was a period post revolution, pre constitution, when some people stepped up and made the constitution. They had a vision. Some of which is is continuing, some of which is is not continuing. The education part doesn't seem to be continuing as as well. That you see now is a time for something like that. And the question to me is, well, first I think of, well, who are today's Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, Jay? And then I also think back, this is something that's come to mind as you were speaking, is that I kind of feel like those names were like appointed, but they they stepped up. 
there was no role that they fill. There was no missing thing, like position that was offered on LinkedIn that they applied for and got. There's, there's, they did more than step up. They put their necks on the line. You know, there was a list of, uh, of names uh, in London. And had we lost the revolution, they were, they were going to be hung or drawn and quartered, whatever the punishment for treason was in those days. So, yeah, they stepped up and, and knew the consequences and the possibilities of, of what would happen to them if they lost. They weren't going to retire to the Bahamas. So they, were, they were going to be dead men. So there was the risk, and and they were able to to step up and able to exert influence to to play a role, and that opportunity is then there today. If someone, if it's not like there's a position open right now that someone could fill, but someone could make it happen. I think a movement. I think a movement. One of the things I'm involved with. I think a movement has to happen to reeducate and reengage citizens, but it, it can't be a, a finger wagging you know, history lesson, it has to, people have to be given a reason why it's so important to them to become literate and engaged. I think it just has to happen. And 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 the people that are in power right now, it, it is always the case that the people in power want... Not that. ...want things to stay yeah. the same. <laughs> they have no, They have no reason to want things to change, which is interesting because the founders uh, took another attitude. But you got to remember that the founders came at a very special time in the history of the world. They, they benefited from Enlightenment thinking, and they benefited from uh, English, uh, English law and, and the English experiment, uh, which, is, it's, which, which isn't the kind of democracy we have, as we know. It's different. But uh, we, our founders thought, and, and I believe that they improved on what England had done, but that all came from Greece and Rome. And the, the people of, the, of that time, uh, including all the founders, were steeped in, uh, in particularly Roman history, uh, the Roman Republic and how that happened and why it ended and whatnot. Jefferson was uh, more influenced by, by the Greeks than the Romans, but in that time, it was the Romans that were the center of Enlightenment thinking. And uh, so they benefited from all that, and they benefited from being across an ocean in this country with almost unlimited resources. We had a defense built in, in a sense, because we're so far away, and, and you have to cross an ocean to attack us, and the British didn't do very well at it, and they were the most powerful. You know, that was like the American army now. The idea of, we were kind of the mouse that roared. I don't know if you ever saw that movie with Peter Sellers. If you haven't, you should see it. Uh, it's hysterical. It's about a country who's bankrupt, essentially, a little tiny country who does nothing. I have seen it, yeah. Uh, and they decide their only salvation is to attack America. <laughs> so, And then, of course, lose. And then America would have to support now, them. I go, <laughs> before getting into that... Not that I want to talk about Peter Sellers. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. But we were kind of the mouse that roared. I mean, the idea that we could take on the British Army was was ludicrous when you think about it. Today's issues are just as big, right? When I talk about taking on changing American culture, my vision, I want to get, if you want to pick it up on, pick up on that, we can. But I'm starting to think maybe I misread something because last time I was, and, and I started this time by saying, it sounds like you have a vision for the future, but maybe you're only talking about the past. I want to help people listening to this who might be this generation's or this century's Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton. I think I think the first thing they have to do is understand the past in the sense that we, we have this thing called the Constitution. We have a thing called American democracy. We have this thing called free enterprise. You have to understand those things before you can change them. So I think what you're looking for is a change in the educational system or new... Well, I think among many things. I see no reason, for example, why it isn't necessary for children graduating from high school uh, and perhaps even in an advanced sense from a university that they have to pass a test in civics in American history. Uh, you have to pass a test to become an American citizen <laughs> that American citizens couldn't pass today. Immigrants have to pass that test. If you want to drive a car, you have to learn how to drive the car, and you have to have a driver's license in order to get in that car and drive it. 
I don't see why there isn't a, a, a test that at least as difficult as immigrants have to pass to graduate high school. You know, it's something that's bigger that I, I really like. And a younger me would have hated. And I think it's not General McRae, Admiral McRaven, but General, his name escapes me for the moment, but he talks about having a year of service, not non-military if you prefer. If I were king, I have often said, uh-huh. uh, I would make it illegal in, uh, to uh, go from high school to college. I would. I said two years, and it has to be... McChrystal. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, General McChrystal. Yeah, well, I, I've been saying this for years, decades maybe. Kids don't know who the hell they are when they get out of high school. They're, you know, they're mainly interested in... In, in girls and beer or some variation on that. Yeah, some are interested. Some 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 are girls, <laughs> and they may be interested in girls, and they may be interested in guys too. Interested in, but, but they don't they don't know who they are. They're not fully formed adults. So we're asking them to make decisions, critical life decisions, when they're not able to make them. Two years, but between high school and college, that'll be mandatory. Could be in the armed services, or it could be in a Peace Corps. It, could, it has to be some civic. Okay, working on infrastructure, working on conservation. Working it has to be some civic duty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're a big fan of that as well. Oh, I think it should be a law. I don't. I mean, it shouldn't be optional. There should be no getting out of it. After two years doing that, they would come back. I, you know, when I was in school. We were in college. We were seeing the end of the Korean vets. Uh, that were going just back to school on the you know, Bill of Rights. The GI Bill? Yeah, uh, GI Bill of Rights. And uh, there was one guy in the in the house that I was in, uh, I'm blanking on his name. He was a Korean War vet. He was one serious guy. Uh, he didn't have any money. And he had the GI uh, money coming in, but it wasn't really enough to be in a private university. He had two jobs. He was an athlete. And he graduated magna cum laude. The rest of us were out partying. And I'm as guilty or more guilty than most. Uh, That's what I thought about when I was in school. Partying was what I was there for. And uh, he was a serious guy. He was like from another planet. I should have followed up to see whatever happened to him. But my guess is he's enormously successful doing whatever he chose to do. I think two years doing some kind of civic service, you know, not just goofing off or traveling, uh, but you must, you must, and, and, you know, we can say these are the services you have to join, the Peace Corps, the hospital, blah, blah, whatever it is, some kind of civic service. I think that ought to be uh, mandatory. Did I tell you about my views on, most people don't like jury duty because it messes with their life, uh, but yeah. it's very, that messing with their life is very temporary. And I found it tremendously valuable. Like I met people from walks of life that I never would have met. And we have a project to work on together. And it taught me large parts of the constitution through practice. I never served. I tried to avoid it for a while. And then New York state passed a law that says you you can avoid it twice and then you got to do it no matter what. And that included lawyers and judges. And, you know, there was no getting out of it. So I went uh, in the city, New York, Uh, grudgingly, frankly, because I had other things on my mind and uh, I I didn't really want to be there. And I, and you had no idea how long you were going to be there. So the whole thing was very upsetting. At any rate, I'm sitting in this big jury room with probably 200 people or more. I don't know. And they play a videotape. Maybe you saw the same videotape of, 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 of it was about America. Uh, It was about the country, about why it was founded, about what the constitution means and why, the judicial system is such an important part of that idea. Yeah, it's not an annoying, it's not a minor annoyance. It's like a major part of democracy. I was stimulated, you know, I was stimulated. Yeah. So I, I went, you go into courtrooms and judges and lawyers are interviewing you to see if you, they want you on that particular jury. And uh, I had an insurance co- I think most cases that go through the courts in New York are insurance cases somehow, They're either medical insurance or, you know, somebody's suing somebody. And uh, I had an insurance company as a client, which, um, which, which automatically disqualified me from most juries. And uh, I got disqualified from two. Oh, you have an insurance company as a client. Goodbye. So then you go back to the jury room. And then what happened, this is why I never served. And it's not because I didn't want to, because I really did at that point. I sat there for an hour and a half, nothing, through lunch. And then the, the, the head guy comes back in and he says, okay, listen, 
we have more juries than jurors than we need, and we don't have enough cases. So you guys are all dismissed. See you in six years or whatever. The- <laughs> Never got to serve. So you got a, a great experience from only, it sounds like less than three days. And yeah. two years, what we could get from that. Now, I'm going to share with you another idea that I had. None, oh, sorry, this is an idea that I had. I don't know if you've ever been to West Point, but West Point was a tremendous experience for me the first time I went, every time I've gone. And tremendously changed. There's a before and after for me in my life of what service means based on certainly the general who brought me there, but really the cadets. Because the general, I mean, his mortal risk is behind him. Theirs is ahead of them. And I remember asking them, you know, no matter what you do, you're defending the nation where roughly half the nation right now is fairly divided, dislikes you know, you, you disagree, they disagree with you, you disagree with them. They don't like you. And they're like, yes, yeah, that's what I got in, for, in this for. Anyway. Yeah, but they're remarkable kids. What hit me was not everyone wants to serve in the military. And I don't think we should force people into the military. But the value of the type of education that they get there, the service education, I think is valuable for many, many people and the leadership that they learn. And so the idea I came up with is a civilian service academy, which would be like, like if you look at it from the outside, it'll look like a West Point or Annapolis, but it's teaching leadership in the trades. And so if we have a, a service, if we have everyone between high school and college is serving in some way, this would produce the leadership of that. That's an interesting idea. I think the educational system has disappointed us. And, and now they're heavily into STEM. So what was it? Howard University, I think, a couple of weeks ago announced that they were no longer teaching the fine arts. And of course, there was, uh, yeah, there was an uproar, uh, and I don't know if they've reversed that decision or not. But I mean, well, this is what's going on. They're STEM, and universities are selling the outcomes of their STEM educations. Now I have to look that up because that's really—I have a PhD in physics, right? I'm pretty into STEM. I don't. I'm not against teaching physics, but that doesn't mean you can't spend time also studying the arts and your government and your country. Not only. Can you spend time on it? It's not essential in the sense of oxygen, but it's essential in the sense of learning how to experience being told that you thought that was beautiful and I think it's not beautiful. Being able to withstand criticism of something that is deeply important to you, being able to express yourself and witness others' expression. This is not like a nice to have for society. This is where we learn resilience, self expression, self awareness. It's not the only place. Sports is another great place. And yeah, you can't test it with a bubble form. And so it doesn't work for the bureaucracy. Well, I mean, among the other things, we live in a culture of greed and um, we're lacking a moral center. When I was growing up, the church or the synagogue or the mosque or whatever religion you were a part of was kind of, it was the moral center of the community. And it was, it was actively the moral center of the community. Even if you didn't go every Sunday, that's where the rules were were formed. And we all knew as kids, and I did anyway, and I'm sure the rest of my friends did, what those rules were and what what we called right and wrong. And we knew also the penalties for transgressing those rules. And, you know, that you can only write so many laws. You can't write a law for every bad act that a human being can, can take because human beings are extremely creative and they will find all sorts of ways to do bad things. It's what we call norms. I hate the word norms because it's so boring. Uh, norms and rules and, and whatnot are what separates, are what are called civilization. Civilization is just about containing mankind's worst ambitions. <laughs> and, and, and it's a system of some laws. It's also a system of some moral centers, community norms. And, and we've, we've drifted away from all that. And we've replaced it with how much money or how many boats or how many houses or how many, you know, that's, be, that's become very important. It's not, I'm generalizing, I grant you. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people around that still value contribution in ways that don't make you rich. But, but more and more, we're seeing that we're missing that moral core and we're making judgments based on the wrong things. You know, we're making judgments based on facts, but they're the wrong facts. It may be, you know, listen, it is possible because our form of government has only existed in two blinks of an eye, and once in Greece and once in Rome and, and here. This is the longest it's ever lasted, uh, and maybe it doesn't work. 
the thing I fear most is uh, isn't you know Putin. Putin is, is kind of a joke on the world stage. He has no economy. He has you know I guess he's got atomic weapons, which makes him dangerous. But China is our competitor, and China isn't going to go to war with us. They don't want to go to war with us. The next, next war will be fought in the marketplace, and, and is being fought in the marketplace. They want to win in that arena. And they have this one huge advantage over us. Yeah, I remember last time you said that they don't have to deliberate. They can act right away. We have autocratic capitalism as opposed to democratic capitalism. They can make a decision and make it happen in an instant. They can decide to, you know, the first time I went to China in uh, uh, 26 26 years ago, Beijing, because we were opening an office there, uh, the road in from uh, the airport was literally a two-lane highway. Uh, the next time I went back, three months later, was an eight-lane highway from the airport into downtown, you know, downtown uh, uh, Shanghai, which was not in Beijing. the process of Shanghai, not Beijing, Shanghai. That was where we opened the first office, and and, and while we were rebuilding Shanghai, in the morning that I woke up because we got there at night, I woke up and I looked outside my window. And the entire horizon was covered with oil derricks. And I thought, what the hell? You know, I didn't realize this is oil country. Well, it turns out they weren't oil derricks. They were derricks. There is a finite number of derricks in the world capable of building skyscrapers. And at that point, 25 years ago, a third of them were in Shanghai. We took 15 years to rebuild the Bruckner, which is a stretch of highway that's about a mile and a half long, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I also think of the, the Second Avenue subway line. It's like we built part of it and it took from the 20s or something. We debate stuff and, and the Chinese can say, oh, this is, you know, this is where the opportunity is. You, you guys are going to do that and go do it. And when you say we debate, I think debate is a generous term, a euphemism. Well, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, I want to go back before. Maybe I misread, but okay. I said there are people, I hope that there are people today who can become the Jeffersons and the Madisons and the, and the Jays and the Hamiltons. And you said, well, they got to know the past. You know the past. So I want to ask about you. <laughs> Did I misread that you don't, I was hoping to get like a vision for the future or what would happen. Do you have a vision? Is there like of looking forward based on your knowledge and your experience and your- For this country. Yeah. And not just for the country and how we would get there. How does it happen? Not just- where to go, but how to get there, if that's a fair question to ask. Well, it is. I, you know, and I'm not, I don't see a dystopian future uh, necessarily, although I think it's possible. I see the possibility that we are the British Empire of this century, going from the major power in the world to perhaps a second major power in the world or, or a third, if there's another possibility somewhere I don't know about. I, I think that's a possibility. It's not dystopian, by the way. It it may be a fact of how life works. The British ruled the world at one point in time, and uh, what they have now is what they have now, but they're quite happy living in it. I think that may be a possible future for America, uh, and uh, that's not dystopian. It may not be what everybody wants, and it may not even be what I want, but I think that's possible. I think people in America has, is kind of famous for people rising up at the right time to do the right things. We had a Lincoln, we had a Washington. Uh, I actually believe that that Biden has the possibilities of being a, quite a transformational figure in American history. I'm hoping my my optimistic hope is that is that Americans will rise up to meet the moment, uh, whether they're in education or whether they're in government or whether they're you know, in, in corporate life, corporations, I believe, should take more of an active interest in civic literacy. Uh, it's in their own best interests because uh, democracy, and I prefer free enterprise to capitalism. It's a nicer, nicer sound. They're inseparable. If one falls, the other falls. They are not separable. Uh, American democracy, free enterprise needs the right climate in which to thrive. Democracy needs free enterprise in order to fulfill the the needs of its the egalitarian ambitions of its voters, of its people, of its citizens. So we can't we can't have one without the other. Uh, you can define 
and redefine both of those, what free enterprise actually is and what are the boundaries and, you know, what are the rules. Uh, same is true of democracy. I mean, we're looking now at a horrendous situation in Washington. Uh, and the questions are, should this filibuster be gone? Are, are we going to go further in the debt? And is that okay? I mean, there's incredibly important seminal issues facing the country. And I'm afraid that we have the wrong people so I, I want to get back to the future. Is, is Are you one of the right people? Are there others? I mean, Oh, I think, I mean, I'm just a voice. Uh, and and uh, But I think it's important that we are voices in our own neighborhoods. You know, we shouldn't look at it in the grand way. You know, you don't need to aspire to be president of the United States or, a, or governor or whatever. You can aspire to be part of the school board in the community that you live in and make your voice heard there. You know, the mediocrity we've got in Washington comes from a system that's failing. If if the system were operating properly, those people, many of them, uh, wouldn't have been elected to public office. We would have had better people that would have been elected to public office because we would have filtered out the losers along the process. But, you know, we don't vote. I mean, we're just we're kind of a disgrace in the world. You know, I think we, we don't vote. We don't. Nobody votes in primaries, and and what are we up to? A big year is sixty percent in a national election, something like that. I mean, it's it's kind of embarrassing. So we're sitting back, saying other people take care. Well, other people will take care of it. All right. <laughs> well, you know, had Donald Trump been smart, or he's not smart. He's canny. He's kind of like a mob, mob boss canny, which is really what he is. He, that's his background. It was his father's background. They were involved with the mob. Uh, building buildings in Queens, you know. So the, the, the mentality is a mob boss, but he's he's not the cause of what we're facing. He's the symptom. So I want to I want to keep I'm going to keep looking forward. Well, looking forward, we don't want to have another Trump. And how are we not going to have another Trump? How are we going to have better people in government? How are we going to have the right aspirations for the country? I, I think going all the way back to civic literacy and and participation in the system. If that doesn't work, if we're if we're at the top of our game, if we if we go back to being civilly civically literate and if we go back to citizens being involved in the government at all levels and it still doesn't work, then we're screwed. Then the system it just won't work. That, you know, that we founded. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm also curious, how does the environment fit into Is that something that enters in, or is that something that democracy can help us uh, address effectively? I mean, that, that should be a, an important part of any responsible government's concern for the future. <laughs> there is no planet B. Did you see that cartoon? <laughs> That's a great character. There is no planet B. <laughs> yeah, when you go to the marches, there's a lot of people with that sign, with their picket sign saying there's no planet B. I love it. I love it. Great great line. Good copywriter. <laughs> I wish I would have written that line. Oh, now I have to go back to the beginning of the first conversation of how you said there's nothing like anymore, right? What, what Toyota, like, let's go places. Or, and oh, Let's go places, yeah. So there's no planet B maybe fits better. Is, yeah. is is it beats all of the uh, corporate stuff? <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling Mars exploration isn't altogether academic. You know, in the air of the environment, one of my visions—not because of of because I want this, but because you you talk about people stepping up in this country, and no one is stepping up around the environment. Well, change comes hard. Change comes easy if you're an autocrat and can say, just you guys go do that thing, or you know, you're know, you off to the Siberia. Change in a, in a republic such as ours comes hard. And our founders meant it to come hard, by the way. One of the reasons that they formed the checks and balance system is to, it wasn't just from keeping a president who wants to be king from making himself king. It, they were afraid of the people, too. 
what they might do. They might get carried away on some, you know, ridiculous fantasy and change things. And they wanted to slow that down. They wanted, I mean, the genius of it is uh, the checks and balance thing is a real genius. They didn't anticipate, they couldn't have anticipated the internet or social media, obviously. But they were dead on anticipating human beings and human nature and human instincts and the in the bad things as well as the good things. And nothing has much changed. Since we craw- crawled out of the ooze, <laughs> nothing really much has changed. Uh, we just have different ways of expressing ourselves, but uh, we're still the same, basically. That's Jonah Goldberg's wonderful book, Suicide of the West, you know, in which he explains tribalism because everything begins with that. It's the beginning and the end of all of our problems as human beings. And basically, if there are two human beings left on Earth, there will be problems. <laughs> uh, sounds like... Because uh... <laughs> I, will, I will want your wife, or I will want your rabbit, or I will want your little plot of land, or I will want something. Mm-hmm. And the way I used to express that is by hitting you over the head with a stone axe, <laughs> just taking them. <laughs> now we have different ways of doing it. But the, but the human humanness is still frighteningly there. And that's what I was saying before. Civilization is what the only thing that contains those instincts. That's why it's so important when I say we've walked away from our moral core and we're losing, we're losing the values we once had. We're making decisions based on facts, but they're the wrong facts. Uh, we're looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at as a way to make decisions. But, that, but that's, a, that's the human condition. That's never going to change. Again, it's like, you know, it's the norms and the rules and the laws and the systems that contain that. That's why people get frightened to death when they hear the word uh, defund the police, which was one of the most wrongheaded (laughs) phrases ever written in politics. Reimagine. I'm sure that they didn't expect it would be picked up in the way that it did. Well, I'm sure they didn't. But my God, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. Defund the police. What are you, crazy? You've now alienated everyone. <laughs> this is anybody that doesn't want police in their right mind. Reinvent, reimagine, you know, yes, fine. That's all right. Not defund. Anyway, they're, they've tried to get away from it, but it's stuck. So we're coming up on an hour. And uh, is there, are there things that I didn't think to ask? Yeah, I kept pointing in one direction. I didn't mean to cut things off of things you're exploring otherwise. No, I mean, you ask me what I see in the future. I, I, the optimistic me sees the reincarnation of the original intent of the Constitution, because I think that intent is perhaps the greatest gift ever given to human beings on the planet Earth uh, it, toward, a, toward a more perfect union, toward. They, they realized it would never get there, and we will never get there. Nobody will ever get there, but toward and we have come, you know, I mean, this country has done wonderful things for uh, for ourselves and for the world. We've been a positive influence in the world. So my optimistic self says that the people are there and they will see the, the need and they will rise up and they will have their voices heard and get involved. That's the optimistic me. If I were a betting man, <laughs> I would give that 70%. Uh, the, the pessimistic me says... Uh, the basic tenets of the system itself are wrong, uh, and eventually we will ha- we, we will be doomed to fail because of that. I would give that, uh, I guess, the remaining thirty percent. I was wondering if there's going to be a third option of like the practical you or yeah, not really. I think it's, I, no, because I think we're on the edge. I, I, and you know, the, the horrible thing is, if you read a book called uh, "How Democracies Die," they trace how democracies have died. Uh, from Greece to Rome to uh, Nazi Germany, which was a democracy, the Weimar Republic. There wasn't a revolution. Hitler got elected. He tried for a little revolution over there in Munich and it went to prison for a while and wrote his, his wonderful book <laughs> that, that I'm sure, what's the Marjorie, whatever her name is, reads every morning. Marjorie Taylor yeah, Greene. Yeah. Anyway, he was elected. He was elected. And, and it's the same way the Roman Republic and the Greek Republic and every republic that's ended, every democracy that's ended, has ended. They didn't change the laws. They just interpreted them differently. It did not change the laws. So it can happen very subtly. And as I said before, if Trump were smarter, he maybe could have pulled it off. 
because I think there's so many problems, uh, the wage discrepancy, the racial issues, all the stuff that we know about is just coming tumbling on top of us. People are unhappy, and he stumbled into the unhappy. And by the way, the irony is, you know, make America great again. He stole from Ronald Reagan. Uh, it was Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan. It was also Hitler's, make Germany great again. So it's a, it's, what's interesting about that is it's a, it's a theme that persists throughout time. I'm sure you could have said, make every, you know, great again <laughs> in a country where people aren't happy with what's going on uh, for whatever reason. But I, I so I'm, I'm, I'm 70% optimistic, but I think, I think uh, some, something has to be done. And one, I'm working on something and I can't talk about it, but I'm working on something that I hope is, is not the solution, but it's, it's a solution. It's a positive so I okay. So all those questions, and I was like, "There's something okay. There is something there, and you, but you can't talk about it. I, I'll respect that. Yeah, I can't. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to very soon, but I, I can't talk about it at the moment. Yeah, I can't. But I think I think the raw material is there. It just has to be galvanized. People have to they have to understand and appreciate why this country is so important. Why this idea is so important, and and why the Constitution is so important. To them, not, you know, academically or not, uh, you know, in ethereal terms, to them, to me, to, to me as a person. What would my life be like if I were living in bloody Belarus or, you know, name a dozen countries or maybe a hundred countries? What would my life be like? It would be a hell of a lot different. <laughs> I mean, talk about being unhappy now. You'd really be unhappy if you found yourself plunked in the middle of uh, Russia or Belarus or something. Uh, or worse, we have this incredible gift that we have been has been passed down to us, and we have a responsibility to keep it going. It's not going to keep. It's not going to go by itself. We're seeing that now. You know, we're seeing it now. We're seeing a dysfunctional government, a faulty educational system, healthcare falling down, infrastructure falling down. I mean, name something that's working. You know, I told you. I think last time we t- spoke, David Axelrod, who's involved with something that I'm involved with is teaching at the University of Chicago graduate course. And he says the kids come in at the beginning of school. Now, University of Chicago graduate students are among the smartest kids in the country. Yeah, I think, I think you're going to repeat what you said last time. Of, of, um, he asked them what they want to change things. They don't know what they're, what they're changing. Well, he's, he's, they, they say, why should, why should we keep this system? Why should we protect it and defend it? It's not working. Nothing's working. Name something that's working. It's clearly not working. So what do you do when something isn't working? You, you get rid of it. And then he calmly asks, well, just tell me about, tell me you're, you're against the system and you want to change the system. Tell me what you know about the system. And of course, they know nothing about the system. They can't name three branches of government. They think Dwight Eisenhower was a Civil War general. They don't know what the outcome of the Emancipation Proclamation. They know nothing. Not because they're stupid. These are really smart kids. They haven't been taught. Yes, the system has. The system's failed. The educational system's failed. It, it was irrelevant. It's like the fine arts are irrelevant. I mean, it's horrifying. Here, you're, gonna, you're just going to go to work for Goldman Sachs. Well, you don't need to know anything about the fine arts or the country or anything. <laughs> you just go ahead and, you know, get out of business school and make $200,000 a year. That's all. That's the only thing that's important. Fuck the country. Oops. <laughs> I said it. I said it <laughs> but that's, what, that's what's going on. So it's, there has to be a wake up, you know, sober up for Christ's sake. You're about to lose what we have. And I think I think we could. I think the really pessimistic side of me says it could change in a nanosecond. Yeah, I was talking to someone who was uh, shooting Myanmar, and she was like, "The morning of the coup was a fine morning." Yeah, and and now there's no way out. I mean, there. I mean, time will resolve something, but there's everyone's locked in so tightly that they can't do anything about it. And once things change, you can't it, you can't reel them back. That's the problem. Once Hitler had the guns. Uh, there was no way to change it. It was over. It was over in 1938 or whenever he became vice chancellor or whatever his first step was before he got rid of, before Hindenburg died. He, it was over there. And you said earlier that people are not stepping up. Do we agree that people anticipate that like, oh, I don't want why do I have to do that? When, and why do I get to do that? It's like an, if they do step up, there's no King George who's going to kill you if you step up today. Yeah. There's no, there's no, yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, and there's nothing that brings us together. World War II brought us together. The First Revolution brought us together. The Civil War, in the end, brought us together. Well, I'm going to use the environment to bring us together. I'm not going to use it. I mean, the environment is something that brings us together. That doesn't answer the social issues and the civic issues. On the contrary, you, it's exactly the environment is not a technology issue. It is not a pure science issue. It is a cultural issue. It is our values. It's our it's our beliefs. Our images. It is the central issue, though. We're talking about... Um, Oxygen is never a central issue when you're above the water. And then suddenly when, when you're below, it's the most important thing. But the pandemic was a, was a, you know, had a, was a bad thing. Uh, and look at the way our government mishandled it. Uh, why? Because we had an idiot in the White House. <laughs> a corrupt idiot. Why is that corrupt idiot? Why was that corrupt idiot in the White House? Because voters put him there. Would educated involved, serious adults have elected Donald Trump to the White House? I, I hope not, because then I, I go from 70% to 80% pessimistic. Because if that isn't, and then environment is part of that, then something else will be part of that, and something else will be part of that. Uh, the central issue in a political environment is the is po- politics to become a dirty word. It shouldn't be a dirty word. Yeah, I mean, all uh, everything comes from from the, this thing that we organized that's allowed all of us to do the things that we have done in this country since we wrote that, since we approved the Constitution. All the social, whatever social ills we've solved, whatever technology we have, it's because of it's because of this system that, ena- that enables wonderful things to, ha- or has enabled wonderful things to happen. It's allowed human beings to to be their best and, and kept us from becoming our worst. We could talk about immigration, which is another, I mean, that's been the strength of this country. The mongolization of America is why we're strong. And, and it's why, and it's one of the things is defeated other cultures because they become inbred essentially. Well, before we get into that, I, <laughs> just because of time, we'll have to wrap up. And But I'm going to yeah. leave it, if it's okay with you, with an open invitation that this thing that you can't talk about, I'm very curious about. <laughs> and I hope that when you can talk about it, that you'll come back and share yeah, because I'd love to. I'd love I, to. I'm hoping that it'll, that'll be soon because it's something I've been working on. I started working on it before the pandemic and then I just put it on the shelf because because of the pandemic. And now I've been back for a couple of months and I'm, I'm hoping to get it up and running, but it'll be interesting. Well, that will be where we start next time. Cool. <laughs> well, Martin Pierce, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's good to see you as always. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.